And a very friendly welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is where we study all things mystical and hopefully get inspired in the process. Today I want to begin the session by talking about language. By talking about language. But first, a special thank you to Dr. Maxi for sponsoring uh, this year of Kabbalah and Coffee in honor of her mom, Dr. Maxi. Thank you. May your mom's memory be indeed for a blessing. So let's talk about language for a moment because language is important. And as we know, whenever you go from, I, I know that right here in front of me, we have individuals that are multilingual, right? How many languages? Two? Two? Three. Three. Um, nice. Very good. All right. Raise your hand. Let's do this. This is not, not going to count on your permanent record. Don't worry. No one's looking. No one's judging. It's just me doing all the judging. Joking. Raise your hand if you, if you are familiar with more than one language. Very nice. Good. Anyone who knows more than one language or anyone who's encountered, even if you're not like, considered fluent or you consider yourself fluent, but if you know enough about, oh, nice. Oh, beautiful. Um, we got three languages. So here's the thing. When, when you know something about language, you, you, you know very quickly that a lot of times things just don't translate from one language to the other, right? There's certain words, expressions, idioms that exist in one language that just don't exist in other languages. What's that like? Um, there's a, there's a, there's this like notion, this idea out there, this line that says that, that um, the Inuit in Alaska have like 30 expressions for snow. I don't know if that's correct. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but they say that like when you're, when you have snow, you have a lot of words for snow and in Atlanta we have one word and we call it traffic or shutdown. Or apocalypse, exactly. <laughs> apocalypse, oh, that was the word I needed. Apocalypse, where were you when I needed you? All right, back to our story. So language is important, and the challenge with language is that oftentimes things just don't translate from one language to the other. And so when we think about Hebrew, when we think about um, Jewish concepts, Hebrew concepts, or let's use the original word, not Hebrew, but Lashon Kodesh, the holy tongue, the reality is that lots of times things are just not going to translate simply into English. It's going to be a little bit challenging. What's very interesting, I, I'm not going to say ironic because I think that's a misuse of the term. Sorry, Alanis. But anyway, the, the, thing, that, the thing that, I'm, that I, uh, if you got that, you got that great, if not, not. But the point here is that there are things that major words in Hebrew that are translated in English and we take it for granted and it's not at all what it means. So I'm going to give you three words, three words that are mistranslated, that, that like everyone mistranslates. And these are three big words. In fact, they're recited on the high holidays amidst much, much um, emotion. One of the most emotional prayers called the Unasana Tokif, the prayer on Rosh Hashanah, both days Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when we talk about on Rosh Hashanah it is written and Yom Kippur it is sealed, how many will be born, how many shall pass away, who will live and who will die and who in his time and who not in his time and who by water, who by fire, who by pestilence, who by sword, who by, it's, uh, who by wild bees, who by lapidation. Everyone's like, lapidation, I don't know what that is, but I don't want to have it, right? That, I don't, I'm not signing up for lapidation, right? And who, I think that's fire. And then who by this and who by that, and it's like the, all of, and, and at the end we say, and it's a very emotional part of the prayer, I remember growing up and in and, and my shul and my synagogue in Pittsburgh and just seeing 
you know, the, the, the elder statesman of the shul, like just crying and weeping tears with this prayer, and you can't help but feel it. And at the end, we say in the final triumphant flip of the script, and we say the following, Utshuva, Utsefila, Utsedaka, Ma'avirin, Ezroag, Zera. It's Tshuva, Tfila, and Tzedakah, these three things that eradicate the evil, that rend the evil decree. It rends the evil decree, and that is... Rends, rips up. Ma'avirin destroys, rips up, gets rid of, right? Nopes cancels the negative, the negative of the decree. Not the whole decree, but the negative, whatever negative of the decree there might be, it, it cancels that out. That's what we say. That after all is said and done, we stand in a day that God is counting everyone. All of humanity passes before God like sheep in front of a shepherd. And God counts each one like a sheep, like a shepherd counts the sheep. And God knows everyone and knows what everyone's doing, etc. And... On Rosh Hashanah, it's uh, written in Yom Kippur, it's sealed, all this stuff. And what, and what helps? Tshuva, tefillah, tzedakah. And notice I have not given a translation yet for these three terms. Deliberately, because that's my whole point. The whole point of this is to point out that the translation that we use is actually inaccurate. Tshuva, tefillah, tzedakah. So what does that mean? Yes, I'm going to put it into the chat. So you can see it written. Here we go. Teshuva, Tefila, and Tzedaka. Okay? Teshuva, Tefila, Tzedaka. So, what do these three mean? I'm going to tell you the translation and then I'm going to tell you what it really means. And what's interesting here in this context is that not only is the translation not like 100% accurate, it's the exact opposite of the real meaning. You hear me? Are you with me on this? Not only is it not perfectly accurate, it's like, but it's like close. No, 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 no. It's the exact opposite of what it really means, and no one knows. Because if you look, if you open up uh, a prayer book in English, you'll see exactly the translations that are not only incorrect, but completely wrong. A uh, hundred, a hundred, complete opposite. So, tshuva, teshuva, and I'm saying it like in the fast Hebrew way, teshuva. What is teshuva? Teshuva means... Sorry, it's translated as repentance. Typically, it's translated as repentance. Tshuva, repentance. How do we get rid of the negative? How do we, huh? Tshuva is the answer. I know Hebrew. Oh, tshuva is the answer also. Good, 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 good. Okay, we're going to get there. Hold on. We're going to get there in a second. I'm just telling you what is typically, right, tshuva could also be the answer. Shailot u'tshuvot. You have a question, you have an answer. Good. Teshuvah, though, in the context of spiritual growth, etc., spiritual reparation is typically in English translated as repentance. Tshuvah, repentance. Open up a, a machsa, a prayer book, a high holiday prayer book. Look at the word tshuvah. Tshuvah, feel it's Look at the first translation. Repentance. Repentance. So, understand this. Teshuvah does not mean repentance. In fact, repentance in the colloquial way that we understand repentance is the exact opposite of what tshuvah really is. What is teshuva? Teshuva, as Adi said, means an answer, but it also means, and it's the same, it comes from the same place, teshuva means to return. Which, by the way, is why it's also the word for answer, because what is an answer? It's when the conversation returns back, where you ask a question and you get an answer back. It's a return. It's is a re- it a verb to return? To return. It's a verb. It's a verb, yes. So teshuva is to return. Teshuva is to return. And the idea here is that, what it, so what's the difference between repent and return? So here we go. 
Repent implies, and maybe if this does, if if this is not implicit to you, that's fine. But for many, tshuva implies the repentance implies the following: that I am here, wherever that is, and let's say it's not a good place, right? I'm in a I'm in a not good place, spiritually, you know, uh, uh, morally, ethically, whatever it is. I'm not in a good place. What is repentance? Repentance is I need to get to a better place. I need to get to a better place. So it implies that the better place is somewhere over there. And I need to get, I need to repent to get to the better place. What is tshuva really? Tshuva means to return. Which means that I don't need to get anywhere. I need to just discover who I really am. And this is a completely different idea. You see, tshuva implies that I am not good and I need to get to a good place. That's what... One second, let me say that again. Repentance replies, not tshuva. Repentance re- implies that I'm not in a good place and I need to get to a good place. Teshuva implies that I'm already in a good place. I just, need to get, I just need to clear away the layers that are obstructing the truth from being realized. Could, could it be returned, though, in the sense that you did something for which you need to repent and you need to return to the state you were before you did that thing? Good. Yes. Yes. Or, or I would add, uh, yes, I agree with you. And I want to add just another um, layer to this. It's not just to return to the state prior to sin. On a deeper level, on a soul level, on an an essential level, is to return to the place that I am even while I'm doing the sin. That's the big idea. Even while there's a phrase from the Megillah. We're coming up, you know, it's the month of Adar. Adar 1. We have two months this year of Adar. So this week is Purim Katan, which would be Purim if there was only one Adar, but because there's two and Purim is the second Adar, so it's like the, the non-Purim Purim, but like the month before Purim Purim. Anyway, it, there's, there's a phrase in Purim that talks about Ba'amna Itai, that, um, that Esther was always with, uh, forget the context, Ba'amna Itai, that uh, Esther was always with Mordechai, she was always like faithful to him. There's some, some sort of phraseology like that. And it's used by the mystics to, in reference to the soul. The soul is always ba'amna itai. The soul is always faithful to Hashem, to God, even while it's doing, even while the person is doing whatever, no matter what they might be doing, the soul is always ba'amna itai. The soul is always with God. In other words, the deepest part of the soul is always connected, despite what the external layers are doing. And this obviously gets into the, the um, you know, what lies under the hood of the human being and different layers of the soul and animal soul, godly soul and all this. And, and even within the godly soul, there's external levels and deeper levels. There's five names of the soul in Kabbalah and Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chai, Yechida. It's the Yechida, the fifth level of the soul that we're talking about, which is the, the quintessence of the soul. Literally quintessence, five layers, and it's the essence. So, but, so it's, it's returning not just to the state, to the pristine, naive, pure state that existed, that I was at before sin, but it's returning to the truth of who I am even while I sin. And the greatest, um, not the greatest, but one, ex- one reflection of this, one expression of this is when a person does something wrong and they come back to the one that they harmed, let's say, and they say, you know, I'm so sorry, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. The person says, that wasn't me. And you say to them, actually, we got the CCTV, we got the cameras, that was you. Literally, it was you. Like, it wasn't me, but it was. <laughs> that was literally you. What they mean when they say, right, that wasn't me, is that's not who I really am. 
Ah, you did it. It's not who you really are. You did it. Yes, I did it, but that's not who I really am. Because who I really am is so much better than my behavior. And that's exactly what we're talking about. That somewhere inside, even if we're doing something that we know we shouldn't be doing, that we're, you know, that's harming ourselves or harming others or harming our relationship with God, etc. Even at that point in time, there is still a part of us that is connected and plugged in and knows the truth and feels the truth and feels the love and, the, and all that stuff with Hashem, with God, and, or, and or with the other person. So that's what we're talking about. There's, there's, a, there's a core goodness that remains... Listen, I'm sure we could ask the question, uh, but what about so-and-so? I'm not even going to mention any names. What about so-and-so? Did they still retain a, a, a measure of good? Did their soul still remain connected even as they were committing atrocities, God forbid? Listen, if we're going to ask extreme questions, I'm not saying anyone's thinking of this. I'm just, I'm preempting. If we're thinking of these extreme cases, I'm going to say I have no idea. Because how, how would I possibly know? There's no way that I can know. But I'm telling you, in general terms, there could be exceptions to any rule, but in general the rule is that even when a person compromises, does something that compromises their values, that's only on one level. On a deeper level, they still feel their values. They're still connected with their values, even as they're violating it on a, on a, on a more external level. This is not to let anyone, anyone off the hook. This is not in any way to imply that there, somebody should be given a free pass if they're doing something that's contrary to their essence and or contrary to, uh, to what's right and, 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 and what's expected of them. But what this is to say is that when we talk, one second, let me just finish this thought. When we talk about teshuva, what is teshuva? Teshuva is not finding some foreign path, finding some sort of connection that exists outside of ourselves, tshuva is simply returning to the real me. Tshuva means getting back in touch with who I really am and letting go of all the lies, right? Cut ties, what was that song? I think it was the third eye blind. Well, cut ties with all the lies that you've been living in, something like that. Anyway, so it's, it's about letting go of all of the other layers that are like, getting in the way of, of the true me. And that's what tshuva is. So again, understanding the difference. Repentance versus tshuva. Repentance implies, repentance implies, and again, if it doesn't imply this for you, that's fine. But for many, there is an implication that tshuva is the idea of finding something brand new, finding a path that is extrinsic, finding some sort of truth that exists outside of ourselves. That's what repentance Sounds like for many people. And tshuva is radically different. Tshuva means, I got this inside. All I need to do is stop living a false life and live an authentic life. Living authentically to who I am is already the good path. That's the key. In other words, the key is, I mean, it's almost like the difference between the notion of original sin versus a Jewish notion. That's really like kind of, it cuts to the core of what this is. If you get to the heart of who I am, is it good or is it not good? That's the question. So tshuva means that the core of who I am is good. So as, as soon as I get back, when I get back to who I am, I'm in a good place. Whereas repentance is, ah, oh, you're bad. You got to repent. You got to get somewhere else. That's not a Jewish concept. That's, so one second before you jump in. So that's why 
I try to avoid, the, avoid using the word repentance, even though I used it in the email this week. I try to avoid it because I, I, the implication is somehow that I'm, that I'm no good and I need to get to, to a good place when really, in truth, I am good. I just have to uncover the goodness, which I'll tell a story about in a moment. Donna, jump in. So, so the part has to be good inside there because that's the soul which comes from God, right? Yes, yes. The part of us that's good, that's pure, is the soul that's a piece of God that we can't mess up. Right. It's almost like if you're familiar with, uh, with technology, you know, you can, back in the day, you know, when Android first, uh, first appeared, so I was one of those guys, I don't know if anyone can relate, it's one of those guys who used to, like, put custom ROMs on my phone. If you don't know what that is, that's also okay. But, like, you know, XDA developers, there's websites, you have to root your phone, and then you, 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 you kind of put a, put a custom ROM on it, and it's all that good stuff. Anyway, I can say to the way it works is like this. The phone manufacturers, they don't want you messing up your phone. They don't want you bricking your phone. Bricking your phone means that now it no longer works. It's basically a brick, right? Like these guys back here, they, they don't, nothing happens other than being a brick on the wall. So that's how one can turn their phone into a brick. If they push the wrong button, so to speak, and if they do something that can't be undone. So that's why phone manufacturers typically lock down access to root files. Like you can't mess it up even if you want to. Like we're not going to let you mess it up. So you can't access the core of the you know, of the phone, because otherwise we're afraid that you're going to mess it up. Like Apple, for example, people would jailbreak their, their iPhones. Jailbreaking was a thing. I don't know if it still is a thing. I haven't heard about it in a while. Um, but also jailbreaking, Apple d doesn't want it. They don't want you. Listen, it, a lot of it is financially driven, but there's also a sense of, of not wanting consumers to mess up their own stuff. It's almost like the core of the soul, Donna, to what you said, the core of the godly soul is protected. You can't mess it up. You can't access that core in the sense to like um, corrupt it. It's uncorruptible. There's a part of us inside that is uncorruptible. So the question is, how do we get to that part and renew our being from that core place that is uncorruptible? That's the question. It's not a question. It's more of that's, that's the journey. All right, Yaakov, jump in. So, without going to an extreme example, uh, what about the person that says, uh, yeah, I just did that, it made me feel a lot better, and you deserved it, and right. I'm not repenting, I'm just kind of like, I'm cool now, so let's be friends again. Yeah, that's a person who's not, who's not taking it seriously. That's a person who's yeah. being matstic themselves, which means justifying their behavior, and saying it's fine, it's not a big deal, which actually is going to be the subject of today's uh, text that we read inside. So, so hold, hold on to that because we're going to deal with exactly that. But I want to build up to it. So the first thing we need to do is, is define the terms. So teshuva, which is usually defined in English, sorry, translated in English as repentance, is not really repentance. Because again, the implication of repentance, at least as used in other uh, theological systems or other uh, religious contexts, teshuva means you got to repent, right? You're bad. And you gotta, you know, you gotta find, you gotta find the path or whatever it is. And, and, and in Judaism, it's not finding a path. You find You don't have to find anything. Find something. It's you have it inside. It, it never got lost. Oh, so here's the story that I want to tell you. This goes back to the 1940s, when the previous Rebbe came to the United States in 1940. 
He quickly established the yeshiva, the Chabad yeshiva in New York. My grandfather actually, a blessed memory, was one of the first, in one of the first classes, I think by 1942, 1943, he was already with a class picture in the yeshiva. Yeah, pretty amazing. I have, I have an old class picture of his um, in the yeshiva. And, you know, already at that point, Chabad was, at least in some measure, in that forward-facing um, or outward-facing modality. When everyone was trying to kind of build in, Chabad was already thinking about building out. In other words, they would send the yeshiva students, my grandfather included, out to other communities. He studied in, in the Chabad yeshiva for like a few years, and then it's like, okay, we got to open up schools in New Haven, Worcester, in uh, it was like, like the Northeast, a lot of the Northeast, like Massachusetts and, and Connecticut and those places. And they went, they went for a stint, until they got something going, and then a permanent, you know, uh, head of school or whatever went out, head of school, as if they had such fancy terms. A permanent shliach went out there to open up a school, and that was it, and the schools exist till today. Anyway, that's how my grandfather got to Pittsburgh, because he was sent, after a few gigs, he was sent to Pittsburgh to help with that, op- that fledgling yeshiva, that fledgling school in Pittsburgh, and then, he was still single. And then someone put, matched him with a girl from McKeesport, my grandmother, who, which McKeesport is a small, small town, really small town, right outside of Pittsburgh. I mean, it might as well just be called Pittsburgh adjacent. I mean, it's like a small town mm-hmm. nearby Pittsburgh. And they got married, and then they moved back, and that, that was it, settled for the next, I don't know, 70 years plus. Anyway, so the point is like this. There was one, one yeshiva student, one such yeshiva student, who was sent by the previous rabbi to go and speak and inspire or whatever it was, other communities, and went around, came back. And of course, when you, get, when you have a shlichus, when you have a mission, mission, whatever, that has other connotations, when you're, when you're sent on a, you know, and you have a, a mission, you come back and you got to report back. So knew what happened. So he reports back. And he says, he went to this shul and that's all. And, and, and the previous rabbi asked this guy, I, I don't remember who it was. I'm sure there's a name to it. I just don't remember who it was. So he asked him, what did you speak about in the synagogue? So he said, I spoke about how there are 600,000 600, letters in a Torah scroll. Now, there aren't. But with the spaces, there might be whatever. There's like, it's like more like 300,000. But it's, we, we have this tradition that it's about 600,000. It's, it's like including the white spaces. 600,000 letters. And if one letter is missing... If one letter is, is faded, if one letter is even cracked down the middle, and understand that this is a very real possibility in a scroll that you, that you scroll back and forth, you know, every week it's, it's moving. Yeah, every week it's moving. You're lifting it. You're, you're, you're taking, when, when people get called to the Torah, they take the little, uh, the gato or the talus and they like touch it. You're, you're like, you're rubbing the letters. I mean, not, you're not trying to rub it out, but like inevitably there's, there's, there's touching that happens. So if one letter is compromised, the whole Torah is not kosher. You can't read from it until you fix. You say, well, it's not even in this Torah portion. It's in a different part of the Torah. It doesn't matter. The whole Torah is invalid if even one letter is missing or even faded or even cracked a little bit, some, even somewhat compromised. So this guy said, he told the previous Rebbe, so I said that every, every Jew is like a letter in the Torah. And what that means is that, e, that if even one is missing, i.e. if one is you know, in, in not, not disconnected or whatever, then all, every single Jew is compromised. The whole people are compromised. And the previous Rebbe said, interesting, but it's incorrect. 
it's incorrect. Because <laughs> it's not possible that anyone should be missing or, uh, or faded or scratched out. It's impossible. He said, rather, it's like not letters of the Torah scroll, but like the tablets that were engraved, engraved in stone. What's the difference? So letters that are written on parchment, ink on parchment, it's two different layers. So you have the parchment, and then you apply the ink on top. And then the ink can always come off because it's two separate things. So you could always, if it went on, it can come off, right? But when it comes to letters that are engraved, the letters are mine ube, the letters, are, that's a Hebrew expression, the letters are of the stone itself. It's not like when you read a stone that has engraved in it, engraved, engraved letters in it. It's not like the letters are a separate space. On the contrary, it's the hollow space of the stone itself. So, so the previous Rebbe said that every soul is like an engraved letter, which means that it's always there. So what, what could be? It's only, it, the, only, the only thing is it's possible that there might be some schmutz. How do you translate schmutz? Some dirt. There's some dirt, some dust, some debris that covers over the engraving, and now you can't see it. So what do you need to do? Just clear away the external schmutz, the external dirt, and you'll find, you'll discover the letter. But the letter's always there. See, in the former example, the example of the letter, of the Torah scroll, it could be that the letter's missing. It could be the letter's actually missing. But in the latter example, the letter's never missing. It's always there. It's just you can't see it. And that's really what it means. That's what shuva means. Shuva means that I'm, I don't believe that I'm a letter that might be erased. Now I have to re redraw my letter. To repent and redraw my letter or find the letter, find ink, find parchment and draw a letter. No, you don't have to draw anything. You, you're an engraved letter. You are, you're already engra it's engraved in you. It's part of you. You should discover that. Uncover that. How? By clearing away the external obstructions. So that's tshuva. I'm going to go through the other ones quickly because really that is the key idea for today, tshuva, the first one. But just parenthetically or just to laman shleimu to complete this, this conversation, the other two ideas are tefillah and tzedakah. We say three things. What's going to fix the negative decree? Tshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah. What's tefillah? Tefillah is typically translated as prayer. Prayer. What's, what, is pray, what is tefillah really? Connection. Two different realities. What's the difference between prayer and connection? So prayer implies that like, I'm, I'm, I'm like begging God, like, please, this is what I need, this is what I want, please hook me up. That's what prayer is. And what's tefillah? Tefillah is connection. Tefillah is, again, this, a similar idea. It's not like I have to beseech some sort of foreign entity that who we call God, to try to convince God to give me what I want. No, tefillah is about a connection. It's not even about an ask. Yes, in the context of connecting, we say to God, look, you want, you want me to, 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 to fulfill this mission that you have for me? Good, here are the resources that I need. But it's, it's primarily about a connection and less about an ask or request. And finally, tzedakah is typically translated as charity. And tzedakah is, does not mean charity at all. Tzedakah means tzedek. What is tzedek? Tzadik. What does it mean? Righteousness. What's the difference? So charity means, right, I went above and beyond and I didn't have to and I still did it and, and etc. Tzedakah means it's the right thing to do. This is not to take away the fun, by the way. This is, listen, it's, it's, by no means is this taking away the fun. The point is that on a deeper level, I feel responsible. I feel a responsibility to utilize my resources for the purpose for which they were entrusted to me in the first place. And this gets into the whole understanding that Hashem gives us 
what we need for ourselves plus a little bit more. In fact, when we give tzedakah, it's so interesting. When we give tzedakah to an individual, the halacha says that we should, the Jewish law says that we should give them, give the recipient a little bit more than what they need so that they in turn can give to someone else. Why? Because them giving is also their need. Does that make sense? They also, their need is not just to accept, their need is also to in turn give. So if you're really giving, it's giving them the means with which to also give. Because giving is tzedakah, it's tzedek, it's right, it's, it's, it's part of the nature of a human being. Human beings were created in the image of God. God is the ultimate giver. We need to also be givers. Otherwise, we're not being true to who we are, being created in the image of God. If God does giving and we do receiving, then there's an imbalance in the relationship. We're not in the image of God, we're the opposite of God. God is the mashbia, God is the giver, and we're just the makabah we just receive. That means that we're not in the image of God, we're the inverse of God. To be in the image of God means that just as God gives, we also give. Talmud says, just like God cares for the sick, we care for the sick. Just like God invites in those that need a, a warm meal, we invite in those. Just like God feeds those that need, gives food, we should give food. Just as God clothes those that need clothing, we should give clothing, etc. We learn this all from Torah, from various stories in the Torah. Back to our story. The point is that language matters. And oftentimes, what we think something, what we think is the meaning of something is sometimes the opposite of what it really is. So we stand on Rosh Hashanah, and we stand in Yom Kippur, in synagogue, one of the most emotional prayers of the year. The Unasana Tokef, Rosh Hashanah, etc. Those the three paragraphs. And we say two paragraphs, and then the final flourish, Uchuva, Utefila, Utsadaka, Ma'avir, and Israel, Xera, the Chuva, Tefila, and Tzedakah, Get rid of the negative decree, or the, the negativity of the decree. And, and it's translated right there in the Maxer. It's translated in the prayer book. Repentance, charity. Sorry, repentance, prayer, and charity. And it's not actually repentance, prayer, and charity. It's tshuva, tefillah, and stuck. It's returning to who you are, connecting with God, and doing the right thing, i.e. utilizing the resources for the reason for which they were given to us. That's what, that's what the three concepts are. Good morning. Good to see you. Here for the... Uh, for the Jeff's Place thing. For... Oh, that might be... Which class are you here for? I'm not sure. It was the Jeff's Place event. I think that's the service upstairs. Maybe. Towards the Super Bowl? At 10 o'clock? No, yes. Yeah, the, they're filming in the PBS. Oh, yes. Oh. Upstairs. So when you go straight to the stairs. Okay. All right. Thank you. Pleasure. Okay. So viewing this in a custom room. Oh, that's hilarious, Adi. That is great. You know, I got out of that a few years ago. It's like, you know what? The stock stuff now is, again, this is only for... Those that know what I'm talking about. But yeah, stock stuff now is like, I don't know. I, f I feel like I've, I've given in to the machine, but whatever. It is what it is. All right. Back to our story. Back to our story. So tshuva is the idea of returning to who we are. Now we get to an incredible statement of the Talmud. And this is where it gets really fascinating. The Talmud says that one who says, Echte v'ashuv, ein maspikin Liyadai la'asais tshuva. 
or ain shuvah maspikim yaday or liyaday. All right, I'll skip the Hebrew because I don't remember it exactly verbatim, but I'll tell you the upshot. One who says, ashuv, I will sin, and then I will do tshuva, ain maspikim biyaday lasat tshuva is not given the opportunity to do tshuva. Okay? So imagine, someone who says, you know what, listen, I'm going to do action X, which I know is wrong. I know it's not what my values tell me. I know it's not what Hashem wants of me. I'm going to do it. Why am I going to do it? Any number of reasons. I'm going to do it. But it's okay, because after I'm done, I'm going to do tshuva. I'm going to either repent or return, depending on your favorite translation. I'm going to return. It'll be good. It'll be fantastic. The Talmud says, uh-uh-uh, it's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to do it. Ain't my speaking. You're not going to have the opportunity to do it. So I'll ask you an obvious question. What does that mean you won't have the opportunity? What if I do it? I don't have the opportunity. <laughs> don't have the opportunity. What, is, what does that even mean? Someone who says, I'm going to sin and then do tshuva is not given the opportunity to do tshuva. What, what, what does that even mean? So I want to give you three perspectives. Okay, three perspectives. Perspective number one, it's a cosmic punishment. Someone who tries to game the system, God says, I'm going to get the last laugh. You're going to try to break the rules, and then because I've given the opportunity to do tshuva, you're going to try to take that as an escape hatch. You're going to sin intentionally with the intent to fix it. I'm not going to let you fix it. Why? Some sort of cosmic punishment. It's going to, you're not going to be able to do it, and I'll have the last laugh. That's... Okay, that's maybe one way to look at it. I'm not saying this is the right way. So, somebody might look at it like this, right? It's God saying, you better not. I'm not going to let you do it. It's like, is it like God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Like, I'm not going to let you do it. Maybe. But I, I, to me, that's not a satisfying understanding. That seems a little, like, punitive. It seems a little bit, um, you know, vengeful. Like God is saying, if you do this, then I'm not going to let you do that. Okay, another way to look at it is, so that's option one, option A, or yeah, let's just do one, two, three. Option one, which, I don't know, is not satisfying to me personally. Maybe it's to you, fine. So again, option one is some sort of cosmic, divine, you know, you're, you're going to try to get me, I got you. you, you I'm, I'm going to get you, you're not, you're not going to game the system. Okay, second option. Second option is... What, the, what, it's, what our sages say might be also in the Talmud, Ein Kateger Nasa Senegar. Aramaic. Ein Kateger Nasa Senegar. What does that mean? It means that the Kateger, the, the um, prosecution, cannot become the defense. What does that mean? Imagine you're at a trial, right? Donna, your dad was criminal defense, right? Imagine if at a trial, yeah, the prosecutor suddenly switches seats and sits on the defense. In what planet does that happen, right? I'm a huge true crime fan. That never happens, right? Never happens. Like, that's not a thing. That the, the, the prosecutor becomes a defense. In the middle of trying a case, the prosecutor is like, well, actually, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm thinking... Let's defend this guy. Who does that? You, you're, you have a job. You have a job. So let's look at this in, 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 in other terms. Uh, not in other terms, but let's look at this situation through the lens of what I just said. 
person says, I'm going to sin and then do teshuva, right? I'll sin and then return and then I'll be good because God gives a path of return. There's always a path of teshuva open, so I'll sin and then come back. We're good. So the Talmud says, or this, this, this approach says, so what's the reason for the sin? What's the justification for the sin? The tshuva. Are you with me? In other words, what is a compelling factor behind the sin? Well, A, I want to do it, and B, I can do tshuva. So which means that tshuva is a contributing factor into the sin. Are you with me? So tshuva is what, co- what got me into the problem. Tshuva can't get me out of the problem. In kateger nasasneger. The prosecutor cannot, be, cannot flip to the defense. What gets me in trouble can't get me out of trouble. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't know if it makes sense, but that's like the phrase that's used. In kateger nasasneger, that which... The, 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 the rationale that got me into it, oh, I can do tshuva, can't get me out of it, I'll do tshuva. I, I, won't, I just won't be able to do it because it's just not, not going to work. Give me a second. I th- it looks like my internet connection is not 100% stable. Let me switch. Okay. Can you guys see me? Thumbs up when I'm back. Thumbs up, thumbs up. We'll give it a few moments. All right, you guys back? The internet cut out a little bit. Yeah, you got it? Okay, fine. So the big idea here is, again, ein kateger, nasasteneger, that the, the prosecution cannot become the defense if what got me into the mess was the notion of tshuva, then tshuva can't get me out of the, out of the mess. It's just, it, it's gotta be used for one or the other. If it's being used for prosecution, for trouble, it can't get me out of the trouble. Okay. But I want to share with you a deeper insight. I, what I believe is a much deeper insight. And it might explain the other two. But either way, this is option three, which is a, such a powerful understanding. Okay, so here we go. Why does truva work? Or how does it work? As I said before, that Shuvah is not finding some other path. Repenting and finding something else. But it's getting back to who we really are. But how does that work? How do, we, how do we get back in touch with who we really are? The answer is, because at, because at some point, one day, we wake up to the realization that we're not where we need to be. And we're like, oh my gosh, I'm totally disconnected from my true identity. I'm not where I need to be. I've been living this fake reality, this false life, not being true to myself, not true to my negative self, I'm not being true to my pure self, and that disturbs me so much that I throw away, I, I, I like with, with a, a frenetic energy, I, I, I clear away all of the negativity, all of the schmutz, all the dirt that covers over my, the pure, pure essence of my soul, and I reconnect, I jump back into that reconnection with my soul. That's what shuva is. Shuva is typically marked with a lot, of, a lot of energy, a lot of noise. In fact, the Rebbe has a beautiful explanation about the me'il, the robe of the high priest. The Torah says, we just read this in, in synagogues around the world yesterday, the Torah tells us that when creating the garments for the high priest, one of the eight garments is this blue, beautiful blue wool robe with... Um, decorations at the bottom. And what are the decorations? A, a pomegranate, like a, fab, a wool 
pomegranate-shaped decoration, and bells. This is the original bell bottoms, right? Little bells at the bottom of the hem of the, yeah, that was a joke, of the high priest, okay, of, of, of the robe. And he walked around, and everywhere he went, it made noise. The question is why? It seems very uh, noisy. So the Talmud says, or sorry, some commentators explain that it's because, you know, when you show up to the king's palace, you don't just barge in. You have to, like, knock or ring the bell. So this is kind of the high priest notifying God, FYI, I'm here to do the service. So he made some noise as he was. But the Rebbe says that's not sufficient because that would mean why you should wear bells approaching the, uh, the temple. But once he's there doing all the service, you have to keep on ringing the bell. That's rude. Imagine if you're still inside, if, if you come inside the house, come inside the palace, and you're still knocking on the door, knocking on any surface that you find in the king's chambers. You're like, hey, I'm here. The king's like, I let you in. No, I'm here. It's like, bro, stop it. Stop it or you're out, right? Why are you still ringing the bell? The high priest is the whole day ringing a bell, and the rabbi has this incredible insight. The bell, the high priest represented everyone, not just tzaddikim, but rishayim, even those that have a, you know, spiritually that are not so connected. And representing those that are not connected is the idea that, I'm, that bring, helping inspire them to bring them close. And the reality is that when someone who's not close comes close, it's with a lot of noise. Just imagine the difference between a tourist and a high-ranking um, minister of the king. Imagine a tourist goes to the palace for the first time. Whoa, it's amazing. The cameras come out. The selfies come out. There's posting. There's texting. And what about someone who's there every day? A little bit calmer. So when it's an unfamiliar territory, there's a lot of noise. So he wore bell bottoms to the high priest to represent those to whom being in the temple experience would be a little bit noisy because they're not always there. You with me on this? That's, that's the significance of the, of the bells at the bottom of the high priest's robe. Because he represented everyone, even those who would make a lot of noise. But my point is that when we are in a state of disconnection from self, what gets us back connected to self is the realization that we're disconnected from self. And it sounds like I'm saying the same words again and again, but I'm not. I'm just saying that again. What drives tshuva? It's waking up one day and realizing I'm not where I need to be and it hurts. And it hurts. I don't want to live a false life. I don't want to do this. I can't keep on doing this. And that drives truth. That drives me to reconnect with truth, with who I really am. This is what we call, in modern times, hitting bottom. What does it mean, hitting bottom? It means when I wake up one day and say, you know what? This is no more excuses. This is not where where I need to be. Or this is not where I can be. I cannot be here anymore. And that's when the change begins. Nothing is magical. I'm not saying magically the change begins, but that's when change can begin with that realization of I'm not where I need to be. So if you you help up for a second with me, here's the big big idea. When a person says, I'm going to sin and then do tshuva, they've never allowed themselves to hit rock bottom. Why not? Because someone who says, I'll sin and then repent, from the beginning, never went down to the bottom. Because they were always a goody two-shoes. Are you with me on this? Even while they were sinning, they were already planning on how to, you know, get back. Which means that they never really went down. And therefore, after they sin, they'll always tell themselves, well, I never really sinned. 
I was never really bad. Even when I did the wrong thing, I still cared about God because I was still worried about Shuvah. So therefore, they'll never really feel really bad about what they did to never rebound. Shuva is about the rebound. It's about the response. It's about the rebound. The down, and the, the, the lower the down, the higher the up. It's like those, those, remember those little balls that were like super bouncy? You would bounce them against the ground and go really high. They called them super ball. And by the way, I went to Canton, Ohio as a kid. And if you're familiar with football, you know what Canton, Ohio is. It's the NFL, it's the Hall of Fame. It's the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame for NFL. And I remember, this is my young child mind remembering this, um, and I might be incorrect, but I think I am correct, that the name Super Bowl, which is appropriate for today to talk about, at least I mention, the name Super Bowl was coined by an NFL executive or owner or someone who, whose kid had a Super Bowl and was obsessed with the Super Bowl, and that's how the name Super Bowl, which is a take from Super Bowl, became, someone Google this and fact check me, Super Bowl, name Super Bowl from Super Bowl. I'm pretty sure my childhood mind remembers that there's 100% a connection. But here's my point in today's context. Here's my point. You, you fact checking? Okay, good. Yeah, let me know. Let me know if that's, uh, if that's correct. Um, here's the point. The, the harder you throw it down, the higher it goes up. You with me? It's like a slingshot. The further back, what do you, what do you found? It was Lamarckan who coined the term Super Bowl for the final game based on the Super Bowl that his kids played with. Yeah. Who was it? What was the name? Lamar. Lamar? Hunt. Lamar Hunt. He coined, was he for the, was he Kansas City Chiefs? What was this? Owner of the Kansas City Chiefs. Kansas City Chiefs. Lamar Hunt. There you go. There you go. Lamar Hunt from Kansas City. He coined it Super Bowl because his kids were obsessed with Super Bowl. All right. I did remember something from when I was eight or nine. Who, who would have thought? Here's my point. It's only going to go up if you throw it down with force. If you gently, if you gently place it down, it's not going to go anywhere. The whole power of teshuva, which is this return, is the return with the same ferocity. I don't know if that's the right word. It's the same um, passion. Uh, passion, velocity. I'm going to use a velocity. It, the power of teshuva is that it matches the velocity of the sin. Right? As passionate as the sin was is as passionate as the return can be, if done correctly. But what if I go into the sin thinking I'm going to do teshuva so guess what? I never really, I was being, I, I was being like a party pooper even while I was sinning. I'm like, I'm sinning, but I'm only doing it because I can get out of trouble. Which means I never really, I never really lost myself in the sin. Which means I'll never really lose myself in the rebound. Are you with me on this? If I, if I don't really go low, I can't really go high. Now, this is not me advocating sinning like for reals. This is not me advocating that. Although, no. What I am saying is that somebody who says I'm going to sin and repent is not, and return is not really given that opportunity. The reason is because the laws of physics don't allow it. If I don't really go, if I don't really hit bottom, I'm not going to rebound. Because I'll tell myself, without being esoteric, let me just say a very, give you a real narrative. If I tell myself 
I'm going to let myself go and do this sin. But, but part of me is a scared, like, oh my gosh, am I really going to do this? And I was like, okay, you know what? It's fine. Because afterwards, I'll, I'll do tshuva, I'll be able to get out of it. Whew, good. All right, now let's go. Now let's go. And then I do it. Now, what happens next? Do I feel bad about it? <laughs> no. Why don't I feel bad about it? Because the whole time I was also worried about God, which means that I never really, in my mind, I can, I can um, I'm trying to be clear and I feel like I'm not being clear. In my mind, I can justify my behavior and say I never really sinned. I never really was unfaithful to God. Even while I was unfaithful, I was still thinking about God. So it's not so bad. That's the story I can tell myself. So even post-sin, I tell myself, it wasn't so bad. The power of tshuva is the realization one day when you wake up and say, I, I've neglected this relationship. I've genuinely messed this relationship up. I feel terrible. I feel, I feel I'm messing up the most important relationship in my life. How could I do that? I will never have that reaction if I did act of ashav. If, if while, while I was sitting, the only way I got around it is like, all right, I'll say sorry and, and, be, and be fine. If that's, if that's my excuse going in, then I'm never going to feel bad about it coming out of it. Because I'll never feel like I did anything wrong. And what's going to happen after is I'll say, I'm sorry. I won't mean it and it won't be tshuva. Are you with me on this? It'll be a game. It won't be real. What makes it real is the devastation. But I'm not going to be devastated. I'm not going to be devastated. I'll never feel that devastation. Why? Because I'll tell myself I never really did anything wrong. I never really did anything. I never really did anything wrong. People who really don't care, they really did something wrong. Me, I cared the whole time. I cared how God felt. That's why I only did it knowing that I could say sorry. You with me on this? The psychology is so... I don't know if I'm saying this perfectly. I don't know if I'm saying this clearly. But I, I, I'm hoping on some level it's, it's making sense despite my flaws in communication. Right? It, it's... The physics example is probably the best. A pendulum. It's going to swing one. When it swings wide one way, it swings wide the other way. The ball, if it, you throw it down hard, it goes up hard. The, the slingshot, you pull it back hard, it goes forward hard. Tshuva, when you go down hard and you hit the bottom, then you can rebound. The whole rebound, the power of tshuva is the realization of this is... The harp, the 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 the, lev, the broken heartedness that happens of with the realization of this is not where I, this I, I, I'm in a place where I shouldn't be. But if somebody says I'm going to sin and then do tshuva, they're never going to feel that they're in a bad place. Just psychologically, they're never going to feel that. But they realize that it's not right what they're doing. But they've already they've pre-excused themselves. Because some people just do the bad thing and don't even think. Well, that's another case. If somebody just does something and never thinks about it, that's, that's right. That's, well, then, okay, that's, that's hitting bottom and not realizing you're hitting bottom. But this is basically saying that I'm going to do it, and then I'll say sorry. And that means that from the beginning, your sorry is not genuine because you don't really feel bad about it. You're pre, you're pre, you, the whole thing is now inauthentic. Because you're only sinning, you're only allowing yourself to sin because you can get out of it, which means that the, you never really lost yourself in the sin. Again, I'm not advocating to lose oneself in sin. I'm just saying that, that but that, that fosters a state of tshuva. Otherwise, it's like the low is like, it's a middling low, and therefore it's a middling tshuva. It's not, it's not, it's not actually, uh, it's, you don't have the extreme. So, 
What a beautiful concept! I, I'm 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 so touched. It's 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 amazing. I remember a concept like it's like alchemy. You know what is al alchemy? The alchemist. Yeah, yeah, changing lead to gold. Yeah, yeah. But this, if you have more something dark, you have the potential to convert for for something very shiny. Right, right, right. And if you don't have the really the really dark and ugly stuff, then you can't have the beauty either. Exactly, right. Thank you. Thank you for giving another imagery for this. Thank you, you for the beautiful class. Of course, my pleasure. Um, so that's, that's, the real, that's the big idea here, is that if we're not, if, if from the beginning we're telling ourselves, ah, it'll be fine, I'll be fine, then we're already pre-excusing ourselves and then we're never going to really feel bad, we're never going to really feel like we like we were unfaithful to Hashem or to another person, we're never really going to feel the pain of disconnection because we'll tell ourselves, I was always thinking about you. <laughs> I was always thinking about you. Even when I did the wrong thing, I was thinking how we're going to get back together. So I was never really unfaithful because I was thinking about you the whole time. That's a mind game. It just, the problem is, you know what they say in, uh, I don't know, in which field, like never let a good crisis go to waste. This is almost like letting a crisis go to waste. Like, you sinned anyway, and now you're not going to benefit the tshuva. The whole point, of, the, whole re, the whole reason why sin is even a possibility from a, from a Kabbalistic place is because Hashem wants us to access the power of tshuva. But if we sin in this kind of half-hearted way and then never access tshuva, then like, then what? Then we, we sinned and we didn't get tshuva, so wait, wait, wait we, we're really like... We really got nothing out of it. It's like at least sin and get shuva out of it and go back and get back to stronger to where you were. I've told this story many. I've told this story many times. We Leah and I were first married. You know that first married. I catch myself saying like a Yiddish expression. We were erish married, and Yiddish you would say it. First married is like first married. How many times you've been married? Anyway. Um, Whatever. What I mean is newly wed. Thank you. It's, it's one of these Yiddish um, expressions. Not that I'm a native Yiddish speaker, but it's like some phrases are still stuck. We were Irish married, first married. Okay. Anyway, so we were, we were newlyweds. And we were at the Shever Brachas, the uh, post-wedding seven-day party celebration. Don't worry, it's not seven days, like 24-7-7. But whatever. It's like every, every evening there's a, there's a party celebrating the couple. And we were at one of these for, like, I don't know, one of my wife's relatives or something. And my father-in-law was there. Came in from South Africa. It must have been somebody in the Mishpacha. Yeah, it's got to be. And um, I remember him telling the young couple. He didn't tell this to us, but he told this other young couple. He's like, he was advocating fighting. Not fighting, fighting. But, like, you know, he was saying how... It's, if done right, you know, it could bring out a depth in the relationship. Because conflict can allow parties to reach a deeper place than pre-conflict. Without conflict, sometimes you can never really get to the core. Again, we have to, be, we have to tread on this concept, the concept carefully. And I, at that point, you know, it, it was very jarring and very, um, you know, like very, very... Um, I was very um, skeptical of this idea. But the point is not fighting. The point is the idea of 
conflict or disconnection allowing for a greater connection. Again, sometimes disconnection could just lead to disconnection. But disconnection, or not disconnection, that's a harsh phrase, but like um, friction done right can lead to the greatest beauty, the greatest connection. We've talked about this before. Love, the, the, the energy of love is attraction. Right? Chesed is attraction. It's like a pull toward. And, you know, sometimes when two people are connected, if, they, if the parties feel like there's nowhere else to, to connect, to go toward, so naturally they're going to create space to then have to overcome again. Because if love is, part of love is the energy of connecting, of that movement toward, so if you're already at each other, right, if you're already connected like this, so there's nowhere to go. So that's why naturally in relationships there's ebbs and flows where there feels like a little bit more separation in order to then overcome that gap and get closer again. Because that's where the energy is in a relationship. It's about getting, it's like overcoming the gap. If there's no gap to overcome, well then there's no energy in the relationship. Then it's a there's, it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit dispassion. I'm saying this only in the context of the notion of utilizing, leveraging the, the, the negative moments for a positive. If we have the negative moments and then don't use it for the positive, you know what we're left with? Just the negative. And that's a waste of a crisis. That's literally a waste of a crisis. It's like if we're having the crisis anyway, might as well reap the benefits of the crisis. Right. If, we're, if we found ourselves messing up, so let's at least allow that to be the impetus to get closer than ever before. If I find myself disconnected and then it just stays there or flounders or like, all right, I become lackadaisical about it, well, then I've wasted a crisis. I've wasted an opportunity for tshuva for that reconnection. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this gets us into, into today's topic. I mean, this is today's topic, but this gets us into the text that we're going to read today. And he doesn't talk about um, exactly the Talmudic phrase that I cited before, which is a person says that I'm going to sin and then do tshuva, they're not given the opportunity. But he does talk about, he does talk about, um, he does talk about post-sin excuses. Person says, okay, I messed up, but, you know, so-and-so made me do it, or which we talked about uh, some weeks ago, or, you know, my environment made me do it, or this made me do it, or that made me do it. We talk about all the excuses. And the problem with excuses, the problem with excuses is that we don't end up owning the negative. And if we don't end up owning the negative, then we're never going to realize and be able to exploit the positive, the energy that is inside of it. If we just have, right, if we just have the negative, and then there's no rebound, then we're just, we're just holding the back, we're holding the negative. Like, what's the point of holding the negative? It's like, God only creates the opportunity for sin for the, to, be, to be the power of tshuva. It's like, God allowed Adam and Eve the possibility to sin. What does that mean? He created something called the forbidden fruit. He told them not to eat it. He gave them the serpent to entice them to do it. And they ended up sinning. And if that's where the story ends, then they're just losers. I'm sorry. I mean, that, then, 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 that, then that's ridiculous. But if because of that, they take stock of who they are, and they say, wait a second, this is not who we are, this can't be who we are, we have to create a new narrative, and they double down on their relationship with God, now the sin is purposeful. Now there's a reason for the sin. Otherwise, what was the sin for? Just the sin? Right? What a low life. Just the sin, just the sin? That's low. Who does that? 
right? But to, to mess up and then to utilize the mess up as a catalyst for greater connection, now we're talking. Now we're talking. Now we're using the crisis for why it's given. Now we're using the obstacle for the purpose. It's like, think of sin or mistakes or whatever it is as hurdles, right? Hurdles. The purpose is not, the point is not to run into them and then fall down. The purpose is to jump over them. I know I'm mixing summer and winter Olympics and I, and I hate to do that, you know, especially uh, right now. But the point is that the hurdles are there to jump over, not to fall down on. So yes, you encounter an obstacle, you encounter something negative and, you know, it's, it, it, it hurts, it's painful. Good. Now you can jump over it. Now you can, uh, now you can overcome it and get closer. If, if, if we never climb from it, then it's, then it's truly a waste. Okay. Again, I hope this makes sense. I hope uh, it's, it's coming out clear-ish, um, and I hope it's resonating. Okay, let's jump inside. So what is a good translation for Baal? Baal oh, Baal means, well, it's good. Baal, Baal literally means master of. Baal, Teshuvah, means a master of Tshuva, which means an owner of Tshuva, which means someone who is activating active in tshuva. By the way, everyone's about tshuva. Because he says even a tzaddik is about tshuva. Why? Because even a tzaddik, their soul is not where it once was with God in heaven. Their soul is in a physical body. No matter how pure and refined, whatever, the soul is still not where it was, which means there's still a gap to return to. Right? There's still, there's still a gap to return to. So everyone really is in the state of baal tshuva. This chapter two that we're about to do is I mean, it's a masterpiece. It, this, what we're about to do inside is an absolute masterpiece. If you have the book or the handout, it's on 246, chapter 2, discourse 16. Absolute gold. This is the articulation, the explanation, the way he, he, he expresses it. You'll see what I mean as we read it inside. It is just, it's, be, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And it's deep, and it's real, and it's demanding of us. It's a call to action, and it's a call for introspection, and it's empowering, and it's uplifting, and it's sweet, and it's beautiful. So let's do it inside. Let's do it inside. Chapter 2, Discourse 16, Chapter 2, Numerous Follies. This book is called Overcoming Folly, so it makes sense that we're talking about folly. Folly in Hebrew is shtus. Shtus, shtuyot, follies. There are numerous spirits of folly. We got, we got a lot of them. And he discusses three. This whole book has been talking about uh, 246. Right? The whole book has been about folly. But he's talking here about three specific ones that are all the same, same type. You'll see, you'll see in a second. There is the folly of arrogance. These are all follies that we spoke about in the last few months, in reverse order. The last one was arrogance. There's the folly of arrogance. There's the folly of self-satisfaction. The folly of self-justification. And finally, the folly of sin. Four, I'm sorry, four, not three. It's, okay, it's three plus one. The folly of sin is like, okay, actually sinning. But look at the other ones. Let's go through them again. Arrogance. Yeah, arrogance. Someone's arrogant. Someone's smug. Arrogant. Then the folly of self-satisfaction, that means patting oneself on the back. 
Self-justification means I did something wrong, but I tell myself, and I tell anyone that listens, oh, I have an excuse. And then, of course, is the folly of sin itself. Listen to this. While the first three do not involve actual sin, God forbid, as the folly of sin, which involves numerous grave prohibitions, nonetheless, these forms of folly are more serious than the last because they may have more damaging effects than the sin itself, and this is such a hot take, I cannot even describe. I'm going to start in the reverse order. I'm going to go in the reverse. Folly of sin. The folly of sin means a person does something wrong. I liked it. I wanted it. It it seemed attractive, whatever it is, and I just did it, and I sinned. That's the folly of sin. Then above that is the folly of self-justification. Yeah, it wasn't perfect, but, you know, this, that, or the other, I justify myself. Okay. Above that is self-satisfaction. I did the good thing, but I feel good about it. Then there's arrogance. Look at me, I'm the best. So he says, the upper three aren't necessarily sin or grave sin. The last one is sin. The folly of sin is sin. But the other three could be worse than the sin itself. They could be more damaging than the sin itself. And if we stop right here, based on everything I told you before, it should already make sense. Why? Because the folly of sin you can get out of. You sinned. You feel bad. It breaks you inside. You do tshuva. You get back to a better place than before. Great. So you went, you took a stroll on the dark side, so to speak. I don't want to over-dramatize this. But you went to a negative place. Feel bad about it. Work through it. Get to a better place. Better than before, better than ever, more connected, more passionate about your soul, about God, about the other person. Great, Mazel Tov. But the other three, you're stuck in quicksand. The other three are, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm justified. I'm the best. So where are you going now? Nowhere. There's no growth. You with me? Self-justification, self-satisfaction, and arrogance. Those other three, there's no growth. Sin again, you can sin again. You sin again, or not sin again, but get stuck in, get stuck with, the arrogance is a sin itself. It says arrogance is a sin. So, so then it's like, the problem is, I tell myself, I'm justified. I'm fine. I did it right. I got it right. You got it wrong. Me, I didn't get it wrong. So then where are you going from there? There's no, there's no growth. There's no tshuva. Uh, somebody says, look how, I did a great job. And maybe they did a great job, but the times I did a great, great job, no growth. Arrogant, I'm the best, no growth. Sin could lead to growth. That's the irony here. The lowest could lead to the highest. This is my, this is my Super Bowl ball, right? The lowest folly is actually could, doesn't always equal this, but when it has the other layers, it won't. But if, it's, if, if it leads to a broken heart, to, to a real introspection, to a, To paraphrase, a come to Hashem moment, yeah, then it's a good thing. I'm trying to find the right, the right terminology here. Right? If it's like, like, OMG, I cannot believe I just did that. Like, that is terrible. And you own it, and you're broken hearted, and, and then you say, you know what? This is not who I am. I got to get to a better place. I have to redouble my efforts. I have to, you know, work on myself better, harder, and stronger. I have to, like, become a better person. Because this is not who I want to, this is not the face that I want to show the world. This is not the actions that I want to, you know, it's not how I want to walk through life. Then what happens? Change happens. But once you get to the other follies, justification, not my fault. Dead. 
that's it. That's where the story ends. There's no growth. Self-satisfaction. Look at me. No growth. Arrogance. I'm the best. No growth. There's no growth. Sin could equal growth. That's the pendulum. In the middle, so it's not bad, but it's also not great. It's just in the middle. There's a word for that. It's mediocre. I'm not, I'm not trying to be disparaging. I'm just saying there's no, there's no growth. And that itself is the worst. That's what he's saying. The effects are worse. Now, it's hard to say that doing the right thing and feeling self-satisfied is worse than sin. It's hard to say that. But that's why he, he says the effects could be worse. That's it. The effects could be worse. You can't say that something's worse than sin. Sin is, is violating God's will. But the effects could be worse. Okay? So let's, um, let's get back inside. It, it, it's, our sages said, folly of sin. Our sages said, man does not sin unless the spirit of folly enters him. So we had this all the way at the beginning of our book, a hundred and something pages ago. 150 pages ago. It says, a person does not sin unless the spirit of folly enters him. What does that mean? The folly is as various as men's natures. <laughs> Show me a person and everyone has their own folly. What's pshat folly? What does it mean, folly? Folly means whatever vice a person has. Everyone's got a different vice. No two people's DNA are the same. No two people's fingerprints are the same. No two people's vices are exactly. Everyone's got their own, their own shtick, their own stuff. The folly is as various as men's natures. But, third line, he knows that he has done wrong and this troubles him. Ideally, right? Somebody does something wrong. Listen, human, everyone's got their stuff, but you own it. You realize it. He's aware that he did what is forbidden and he is remorseful. This remorse, this sense of being troubled is a mode of tshuva. In other words, the pain itself is already the first step to returning to a better place. Why? Because it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the pain that is the catalyst to run away from that pain. It's the hitting bottom that's the catalyst for the rebound. Now, it's not true repentance yet, he says. It's not full tshuva yet. Why? Because tshuva implies, just to explain, the Ramam says, it's a, a Jewish law says that full re- Oh, we're using the word repentance. Whoops, whatever. Tshuva, full tshuva means that I'm in, that I'm in a better place now that I have committed to, and I am the, where I am right now, I will not revert back to that behavior. So this is still level, this is still step one. This is not, I haven't fully come to that place of like, I'm not doing it again. This is still like, I can't believe what I just did. I gotta get out of here. This is not me, I gotta get out of here. So that's step one. That's the most important step, which is really what we would call owning it, um, taking responsibility, not deflecting, right? But he's saying like this, sin is bad, but <laughs> the positive is that it leads to tshuva. And it's not true repentance yet, back inside, but he is uneasy about his past, and under the proper circumstances, he'll be aroused to full repentance. And he says, he gives a timeline. This might be through an inspiration from on high, or at a propitious time, a special time, like Elul, the month preceding the holidays, or the days of Slichot, the days right before the holidays, or Rosh Hashanah, and the t- 10 days of repentance, or Yom Kippur, which I'm adding. Right, in other words, the, the journey begins with the realization of, oh my gosh, where am I? How did I get here? What have I done? And then full tshuva takes time, and it might be at the right time that it happens, etc. Is he going to give a definition of what full tshuva 
No, 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 no. But I'm, I'm giving. Full tshuva is really, I think, three steps. Well, it's two steps. It's charata la'avar, and it's, um, it's remorse over the past, over what was done, and it's a firm resolution to not do it again in the future. So, which is a process. Because how does one know that one will not do it in the future? Maimonides says that the only way to really know that is to be faced with the same test, temptation as prior, but this time to actually make a different choice. So, for example, if somebody steals and is thrown in jail, and when they're in jail, they don't steal, does that mean that they're not, no longer a Ghanav? No, they just haven't had the opportunity. So if somebody says, you know, I messed up, I'm not going to do that, you know, uh, and then they don't have the opportunity, well, we don't know yet. And it's not like anyone needs to know. It's not, no, no, no one needs to be judging anyone else, but even the person themselves, they don't know if, have, if facing that challenge, if they would make the same mistake or be different. When a person faces that same challenge, then, so anyway, the point is, I'm, I'm not, what I, all I'm saying is that, that there is a, it, there's a timeline here for how, how tshuva unfolds. But the main two components are re, like remorse, which means owning it. Like, I admit, I, I messed up. And then, kabbalah teva lahaba, a good resolution for the future. So it's attainable by everybody. Attainable. <laughs> now that, could be in a second. Right. Split second. It's like, I'm done with this. This, this was terrible. This was harmful to me and to others, to God, whatever it is. I'm done. I'm finished. How long does that take? Blink of an eye. Could be a blink of an eye. Could be a lifetime. Could be in between. All right. How, so this is the folly of sin. So sin is bad. It's not good. Sin. Sin is sin. But, but the upside is tremendous because it could lead to tshuva, which is great. And, and I said before, that's the whole point of sin. The whole point of sin is to, to lead to tshuva. Okay, however, however, the next paragraph, folly of self-justification, but one affected by the folly of justification, if it's not sin, but rather justification, that's the problem, that person will deny any wrongdoing. He will cast all blame on the environment or other people. It will never occur to him to think about tshuva. And indeed, he incurs further wrong by unjustly accusing others for his failings. So what he's saying here is that the folly of self-justification is much worse than the folly of sin. Because sin, at least, is a wake-up call, hopefully. Self-justification, I didn't sin. I didn't do anything wrong. It's not my fault. They made me do it. Right? He made me do it. She made me do it. It's their fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's this fault. It's that fault. The leadership's fault. Oh, whatever. Just blaming everyone. Pointing fingers. But then there's no upside. There's no, there's no growth. It's blame, but blame, blame is like, blame is the ultimate sterilization of growth. Blame is like um, bleach on, I don't know if bleach is a sterilization thing, but what I, it, it, kills, it kills growth. Sin is digging into the earth, but hopefully a seed can be planted that can grow. But, but when, when we justify, say, oh, yeah, it wasn't so bad, because whatever. Or like I said, oh, I'll do tshuva, whatever. When you justify it, oh, great, now what? Now there's no growth, right? And, and he explains that it really is a problem. He chose this particular environment in, the, in these friends. It is his fault. 
So in truth, it is his fault. But by telling himself it's not his fault, he's not going to have growth. So the folly of self-justification is more grave than the folly of sin. Sin is one thing, but at least you can get out of sin. But self-justification is worse because there's no growth. Let's continue. Higher than the folly of justification is that of self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction means I did something good and I feel good about it. This is no, no sin happened here. I did something good and I feel good about it. So you're at, the question is asked, so how is that worse than sin? That's worse than sin? I did something good and I feel good about it. That's worse than sin? How do we get to this place? Hold on. Let's read. It is worse than the folly of justification due to the fact that the justification only applies to the cause for his folly. But he does, not re- but he does recognize that the act itself is wrong and must be... And must be, one second. Let me read that again. Um, it only pertains, the self-justification only pertains to the cause for his folly, for the sin. But he does recognize that the act itself is wrong and must be corrected. 248. Although he regards himself as blameless. He claims the reason why he didn't behave was not his own fault but someone else's. But he does agree that the act itself is wrong and must be corrected. So, again... There's, there's, we start off with sin. Sin is sin, right? I did something wrong. The, the good news is if I own it and correct it, shuva, great. There's a tremendous upside. Deeper, better than before, better than ever. That's one thing. The next level is self-justification where I did something that's not so kosher, but I tell myself it's not my fault, it's their fault, it's his fault, it's her fault, it's their fault. Eh, point fingers. So he says that's, that's worse because then there's no growth. But in that case... Still, there's a recognition that the thing is wrong. It's just blaming, deflecting who's at fault. However, the folly of self-satisfaction leads man to feel that he is perfection personified. <laughs> that he is perfection in a, uh, in a nutshell. And besides not needing correction, he's even self-satisfied. So self-satisfaction is, forget about any growth. The other one, self-justification, there still could be growth. Because a person's saying, I did something wrong, but it's their fault. But I could still learn from that maybe on some level, even if it's not full tshuva. I could still maybe learn from this. But if somebody's self-satisfied, look at what I did, pat myself on the shoulder, there's no growth at all because I'm perfect. I'm good. The next higher folly, folly of arrogance, he says in 248, uh, the next higher folly is the folly of arrogance is in his Torah and divine service. That folly is even worse. Because the self-satisfied person has failed to reach fulfillment at all, neither fulfillment of the purpose of, being, of his being created nor fulfillment of the purpose of his divine service, which is bittal. Right? So when a person is self-satisfied, so it's not reaching the potential. But arrogance is not, not, re- is not just not reaching potential. Arrogance is an actual sin. That goes back almost to level one, but without realizing it. It's actual sin. And it impairs, as we said before, the yod the first two letters of the divine name. And it harms him by ruining his abilities and the sensitivity of his soul. Ruining his abilities. There's a better word for that, in my opinion. Ruining his abilities or... Oh, I had a better word this morning. What was it? Not ruining. Ma'abed. It's um, not losing out on. There's one word. Neglecting. No. Ah, lose, well, let's say losing out on his abilities. Impairing his abilities. It's not capitalizing on his ability. Arrogance arrogance ensures that a person is not going to reach their potential. To illustrate, here we go. He gives an example. One may be blessed with a rich mind. 
able to derive understanding in a new area from what, he's, from what he has mastered in a different field. And then the spirit of folly persuades him. Why do you tire and exert your mind so much in Torah study? Whereas the person has a great mind. But then what happens, the arrogance says, oh, you're so smart. You don't need to put in hours of Torah study. You have a gifted mind. And as much as you study will be sufficient. You only have to study a little bit because you're so, so, so brilliant that you'll get it right away. But the truth, of course, is different. For if one claims, I have not striven, yet I have discovered, do not believe him. If somebody says, I've accomplished without any work, they're a liar. Without labor, without effort, it is absolutely impossible to comprehend. No matter how gifted and facile a mind, he must strive. And it will not become as, and he and, and the person will not become a sage automatically. If he's truly gifted, he continues to say, then through great efforts, he would achieve true heights of scholarship. In other words, number one, you're not really achieving what you should be achieving. And number two, if you are so smart and you can understand so much in such, amount, such a short amount of time, imagine if you put in a lot of hours of study. Imagine what that would look like. <laughs> so much greater. If he gives only a minimum of his time to his studies, he will achieve a minimum. All this why all of this? Because of the spirit of folly that conceals the truth. He blesses himself in his heart that with minimal time and minimal effort he will achieve what another must labor for mightily. But even if this were so, why should he forget that with, mu that with much more time at study he would accomplish so much more? But the truth is that he's mistaken. For I have not striven, yet I have discovered, do not, yet I have discovered, do not believe him. Somebody says, I've accomplished so much without any effort, don't believe him. I'm going to summarize in a second. Let's just continue and finish out this, this discourse. There are more forms of foolishness. 250. There are more forms of foolishness. Some may plead physical infirmity that makes it hard to study. The mind tires easily or the eyes are weak or something. This is clear falsehood. This is a little bit interesting the way he says it. If someone's not feeling well and they're like, oh, I can't study because I don't feel well. He says, fake news. Why? For if once, because the Talmud says, if one's head bothers him, let him study Torah. If one's body bothers him, let him study Torah. You know what the cure to a headache is? Not a Tylenol. It's Torah study. It's the wrong T word. It's not Tylenol, it's Torah. Right? Tell the CDC. Tell the CDC. Well, okay. Not going to, okay. CDC, CDC. Right? I'm just saying. But like Torah study is, listen, I, I, I don't know about you guys. I can say for myself with 100%, with 100% um, confidence and I've, I've been teaching for many years, teaching Torah to many of you for many years. If I'm not feeling well, the best, I mean, if I'm really, if I can't, you know, if I can't, I can't. But if I'm not feeling well, the best thing for me is to teach Torah, study Torah. It's, it's not even a question. Not even a question. As it says in Proverbs, Torah is a healing to all, to all his flesh. There you go. Just put it in a bottle. What did God say to Moses? Take two tablets and call me in the morning. Uh-oh. Hence, <laughs> hence, it is only his spirit of folly that leads him down undesirable paths until he acts contrary to reason completely. Besides going against God's will of you were created for this purpose to occupy himself with Torah and divine service and with God's help to attain his true fulfillment. So he says here that there are many forms of foolishness, but all are conspiring essentially for the same thing, to keep us away from our purpose. In summation, I want to just quickly go through the four levels and explain why one is worse than the other. Give me 60 seconds. Sin is bad. But if you feel bad about it, that's great. You can rebound and get much better, better than ever. You know, new and improved, new formula, not new formula, deeper than ever, stronger than ever. It's great. But what happens with self-justification? I did something wrong, but it's their fault. 
no growth. What about self-satisfaction? I, I did something right, right? No growth. Arrogance, look at me, I'm the best. Impairing God's name. Turns out that there are things worse than sin or things that have a worse effect than sin. So what's the message for us? Big old caution signs, my friend. You're driving down the road and you see that triangle yellow sign with those little um, things, right? Oh, man, I can't even speak. Those like wavy lines like that, right? It's like, what is this? Lombardi Street? Lombard? What is it? Help me out, Tony. What's Lombard? Lombardi? Lombard? Lombard? You said it. Lombard. Lombard Street. What is it? San Francisco? That's, you know that street that goes like this? I love that street. Um, so... I was actually there. Man, we were there for the summer. Not the whole summer. We were there for a few days once, years ago. We were doing a camp in Long Beach, California, and then we drove up the 5, the 1, PCH, Pacific Coast Highway. That's the 1? I think it's the 1. Whatever it is. Anyway, we drove up the coast. We did sand duning thing, those things, somewhere in Pismo Beach, I think it was. And then we went up to San Francisco, and man, I know, I think it was Mark Twain or somebody who said, there's, no, there's nothing as cold as a summer's night in San Francisco, something like that. There's some sort of line like that. Anyway, but Lombard Street, right? You have that thing and you got a sign, maybe not there, but elsewhere when you're driving, you know, on the PCH and it's, you know, it's a mountainy and all that stuff and the ocean's right there and you just want to make sure you stay on the highway because the alternative is not good. Anyway, the point is that these are all caution signs for us. Caution, beware of what the mind does to us. Beware of the tricks that our mind plays to our detriment. If only we owned it, we would be okay. No one's saying that you got to be perfect because that's not a possibility. You can't be perfect. But if you own it, great. You can be better, better than before, stronger than ever. But if you tell yourself, it's not my fault, he made me do it. She made me do it. They made me do it. My environment made me do it. My friends made me do it. Then what? Just wasted an opportunity. You wasted a good sin. You wait, literally wasted a good sin. Wasted a good show opportunity. Tell yourself, no, no, I didn't sin. I did something good. Waste, waste. I'm the best. Waste. It's a wasted opportunity. These are the caution signs. This is not meant to be a rebuke or wagging a finger. This is meant for us. These are signs that we can put in our head. When we catch ourselves with these narratives, we ought to tell ourselves the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. There you go. There you go. That's it. Ah, beautiful. Anyway, um, Tony, I read the article. Speaking of cold, the water. Anyway, amazing. All right. We'll, we'll talk about that another time. The Kabbalah of, uh, of the cold. So the point is, that these are all cautionary signs for us, for us, for growth. If we want to be authentic people, we want to be real people, let's, a few things. Number one, embrace the fact that we are not perfect. We're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect. We weren't created to be perfect. It's not like God says, oh, you need to be perfect. But what we, what we ought to give ourselves at least is the benefit of the upside of sin, the rebound is the benefit of the growth. If we just go down and never go up, ay ay ay, and that's all in our control. The fact that we'll find ourselves down, it happens. But that we don't utilize that for a greater ascent, that's on us. 
So no justifications. When we catch ourselves justifying, pointing fingers, just know this. It's not about anyone else. It's not good for me to blame someone else. It's not good for me. I don't grow. I don't grow from that. If I tell myself how good I am, I don't grow from that. If I tell myself and others I'm the best, I don't grow from that. If life is about image, then all these things make sense. But if life is about authenticity, and I know Adi used that word before in the chat, if life is about authenticity and growth, then it's a different story. Then I realize that I'm not perfect. I embrace my humanity. And I don't tell myself, well, I'm fine for flaws. That's justification. But I tell myself, I'm going to grow from this and become stronger and better. I messed up. I own it. This is a healthy approach. Are we ever going to get this perfect? No. But do we have, hopefully, another narrative to insert in our minds when we catch ourselves you know, making these mistakes? Hopefully, yes. This concludes Discourse 16. And it also concludes a major focus of this book. Because starting next week, we turn to Discourse 17. And Discourse 17 talks about a completely different folly. I mean, it's all related. But this is the folly, so to speak, the folly, the shtus, of business, of money, of work. Put in other terms, the challenges that come, that come along with earning a living. Spiritual challenges. Um, a person can, might say, you know, I need to compromise my values to make an extra dollar. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to shift, and not really shifting, moving along to another folly, the fo follies, challenges that can come in the context of our financial um, pursuits. Very important, very practical, very real, and very mystical at the same time. So that's all coming up next week. So this kind of concludes the justification part, like this idea. And the main idea today is never let a crisis go to waste. Never let a good sin, a good juicy sin, Go to waste. Own it. Embrace it. Let it, let it be the catalyst. Let it be the, the, the breaking up of the soil that allows the growth to happen. <coughs> Thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. Um, may the best team win. For those that are interested in... Uh, thank you, thank you for the thank yous. Um, may the best team win. And of course, I mean inside. No. May the... <laughs> I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted. On the one hand, Cincinnati, you know, is close to Pittsburgh, <laughs> for whatever that's worth. The other right. hand, you know, uh, Stafford. Nuss. I remember listening to, uh, huh? Nussin's in L.A. Yeah. It's a home game. I, I told Nussin, I was speaking to him last night. I'm like, Nussin, my oldest son is in Yeshiva in L.A. I'm like, Nussin, the Super Bowl star, I just came to this realization. I know it's not a very, you know, lofty thing. Like, 3.30 is the game. I can't relate. To, Super Bowl starts at 3.30. Can you imagine? 3.30? It's over by 7. You get a whole night. I don't know. Anyway. Oh, I asked him. So I asked him. I'm like, Nassim, are you going to go down to SoFi? SoFi? I think that's the name of the stadium. Or maybe not. Whatever. Go down to the stadium. And wrapped filling. He's like, as far as he knew last night, the Yeshiva students did not get permission. But I would assume that some of the local, he, the local shluchim, local rabbis, they probably got that covered. He's like, they probably don't want us there because there are probably big screens outside. Like, yeah, you're probably right. Anyway, but he told me last year in, in his last year in Chicago, he used to go to Mifzayim. That's what it's called, like the, the Friday afternoon phone wrapping situation. He went to Wrigley, the area of Wrigley Field. So in the spring and... and to do that. 
a lot of rapping. While, but they have a lot of day games, right? In Chicago, there's a lot of day baseball games. So they would often be also catching, and outside Wrigley, they have a, apparently, I don't ever, he said something, they have a, a screen where you can actually watch the game outside. So I, I hope his rabbis aren't listening, but I guess it's too late now. Anyway, anyway the point is that there, was, there might have been some, a little bit of, uh, no, Mendel goes to downtown. Not really. Yeah. Whatever. Downtown. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Good. All right. So that's it for today. It's good to see you all. And uh, hopefully everyone has a very thank you. Thank you. Baruch Hashem. We should all be inspired. We should have an inspirational week. And it's about being metacognitive, aware of what's going on in our minds. So we don't let the excuses run away and we find ourselves like not, we should be, should be aware of our thought processes. It's a really, it's a powerful thing. Not just to think, but to be aware of what we're thinking. And when we catch ourselves justifying whatever, we can, uh, we can tweak it to make it work for us. All right, thanks for joining. This week, what do we have? Um, today, nothing in the evening. Oh, Super Bowl. Uh, sorry. Tomorrow, we have regular DVP. Monday, Monday night. We don't have this week. Monday night, Tuesday night is JLI meditation. Wednesday is Torah studies. Thursday is meditation. Next week. Sunday is. Sunday, we have the concert. Yes. Judy's in the soundtrack. Join us for an all awesome event. Dinner and a show. That's next Sunday, February 20th. My English birthday, 6 p.m. dinner, 6.30 show. That's going on right here, IJA on the Beltline. Next is, what else is next? Book club may have to be, I, we may have to shift the date on that. Not for this, for another reason, which I'll, I'll announce. I mean, I'll, we'll send out an email. And then um, Monday night is After the Fire with Marika Feuerstein. Talks about her father, the mentor of Malden Mills. Oh, this Thursday is Israel. Yes, thank you. Hidden Secrets of Israel this Thursday. Virtual tour of Israel. That's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, we've got a lot of stuff. Check the website. Better than my head, because my head is all like on Kabbalah mode. All right, everybody. Tadaraba. Uh, have a Shavuot Tov. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you soon. Lots of love. Take care, everybody. Shavuot Tov. What does Bittol mean? Bittol. Bittol means nullification. It means um, letting go of self.